This podcast is from our Tabar Gathering 2019. For more information on Tabar, please go to our website, tabar-network.com. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, really good to be here. It's a real privilege for me to, to take part in uh, this session with you. And thanks, Neil, uh, getting me up in time. The truth is, actually, he didn't know what to say about me. So he just got me up as quick as possible. I think that's what it was. Um, maybe we could read a verse of scripture before before I, I share with you. It's Psalm 85, very well known uh, verse, Psalm 85, verse 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Amen. Let me first of all make a disclaimer. Um, speaking on this subject of the life of a revivalist, I didn't choose a subject. <laughs> it was given to me. And uh, I probably, and I need to be careful here because I, <laughs> I feel the Lord's rebuke a little bit, but I probably wouldn't have claimed to be a revivalist. Uh, and yet, I've, when I, I planned to say that, I felt the Lord rebuking me and saying, uh, you just be what I've appointed you to be and get over false humility and all that kind of stuff. Because whilst I don't want to take on any accolades, as I'll explain in a, in a moment or two, um, I believe I've been born for revival. And I could tell you my testimony, and I'm not going to, but I was literally born in a sense of... Um, a miraculous birth by way of deliverance at birth when I should have died and so on, my, my mother. And it was her prayer that the Lord would um, preserve my life for the purpose of doing something for him. And so um, I feel this kind of tension. Um, but it's also a disclaimer because I, I do have a conviction that you should only really minister out of experience. And it's very hard to do that with revival when so very few living people experience the real thing. And we use that term, as we'll see in a moment, for various things. And also, another disclaimer is that I have evolved in my understanding of what revival actually is over, over the last number of years. And probably that's going to continue. And so the disclaimer is the thoughts that you're hearing right now are thoughts in process. And uh, I would encourage you to pray that you will discern the Lord's mind in what I'm sharing with you today. I feel a little bit like Paul whenever he said, I say to you and not the Lord. So test what I'm sharing with you. I think it's hard to be dogmatic on this subject for so many reasons, not least because we're talking about an act of God. Um, and of course, this is complicated further because revival means different things to different people. And I wonder what it, it means to you. Not everybody is interested in revival. And I'm talking about Christian people. So right away, we can discount a number of people. And then those who are interested in this subject can disagree on what it is, what it looks like, and how we get it. And consequently, if, if today's seminar is the lifestyle of a revivalist, what you believe about revival is going to affect 
your view of, of what a revivalist should be like. So I want to answer two questions. I think we need to answer the question, what is revival? To understand then what is a revivalist? How can we affect it? So first of all, let's, let's look, because uh, some people, <laughs> that's, that's a revivalist, snake handler. You know, we, we have various ideas, but what is actually um, revival truly and, and biblically? Now, historically, I hope we're all agreed, and we hope we're all in the camp. Why would you be on a weekend like this if you're not? To believe that this is a thing, that revival is an actual uh, phenomenon that ha- has existed and is possible in our present day and generation. Historically, we know that this has happened. So whether it's the Great Awakening with uh, George Whitfield or John Wesley, there's usually one individual or a few uh, people who are remembered as the revivalists. So we could we could name Wesley, as I said, Edwards, Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, Charles Spurgeon, Billy Graham, more modern times, Hebridean revival with Duncan Campbell and the Faith Mission, and right up to date the Brownsville um, with Steve Hill. And when we study historic revivals, and I would encourage you please to do so, and I'm not going to rehearse many of those facts to you uh, today, but when you study these, it stirs you up. It does something to your spirit to get excited and then consequently anticipate that God could, should do something like this today. And so the cry comes, as Evan Roberts of the 1904-1905 Welsh Revival, do it again, Lord. Do this again in our day and generation. But do what? That's the question. Do what? Now, I'm going to give you a definition of revival, and it's my definition. I haven't pinched it from anyone. And I hope that it's comprehensive. It's probably not absolute and accurate. But for me, revival is a fresh inrush of the Holy Spirit into the church, bringing a level of renewal and holiness that affects widespread awakening in the conversion of the lost and the transformation of societal norms, social communities, geographical regions, and human institutions are significantly impacted. And feel free to take a photo of any of the slides here today. An inrush of the Holy Spirit into the church, bringing a level of renewal and holiness that affects widespread awakening and conversion of the lost, transformation of societal norms, social communities, geographical regions, and human institutions are significantly impacted. Revival is more than people just joining the church. And it can happen in a regional area or it can happen nationally across a whole nation state. Now, what genuine Christian worth their salt would not want this? We can all say amen to We want a revival, but that actually isn't the issue. It's good to get to that point. But the issue is, how can we affect this? And how can we prepare to do what is necessary to position ourselves for this to happen? I hope that's where you're at, because that's what we're going to talk about. But before we do that, I want to um, issue a few warnings and caveats in relation to The danger of revival, and I'm talking about not the actual event, but a revival orientation and a revival theology, because there are dangers. Let me be clear on this. First of all, 
there is the danger of studying the past and therefore we require God to do a similar thing, to reproduce more of the same in the present. And we've heard this verse several times already, um, and it's not a psalm, that's a, a, a mistake. It's Isaiah 43, 18 to 19. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will make e even a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So a new thing's a new thing, okay? And uh, therefore, we must be stimulated by what God has done in the past, but we must not be bound by the past. And so many people that are enthusiastic about revival, this is what happens. They get stuck in history. And they are looking for God actually to replicate something that he's done before. And God is the God of the new. I mean, you only need to look into nature to see the great spectrum of a variety of what God as a creator does. He's the original artist. So he, he very rarely repeats himself in that sense. And as we've heard over this, this conference already, we're looking for a new wineskin for new wine. So why on earth would we be resurrecting an old wineskin from the past? Also, each revival has its own peculiarities and unique features. So we're in danger of actually missing revival if we're looking for a duplication of the past. And here's a very sobering fact in all the study that I've done of revival over the years. It's often those who have previously experienced revival who most oppose the new revival because it doesn't look what the, like, like what they experienced. That's scary. Even Evan Roberts that you saw there was condemned by a minister who, who, who served the Lord near to him. And he had already experienced revival a number of years previously, but was condemning Evan Roberts as an imposter and a counterfeit because it didn't look like what was now happening. That's, that's scary to me. So here's the lesson if you want to be a revivalist. Don't mold yourself on a previous move of God be prepared for the new. And that's even more up-to-date moves of God. As you go through charismatic renewal, and even up to recent days, so many of us want to mold ourselves according to something that God has already done. That's maybe not what he's doing right now. So there's one danger. Beware of looking to the past too much and being tied to the past. The second danger is the opposite direction of projecting your hope of revival too far distant into the future. Do you understand where uh, you spend your time fantasizing about an indefinite, unspecified future event? And for some people, this can actually be also fastened to a personality. And so people are looking for this, you know, knight in shining armor riding on a white horse coming to deliver revival. It's kind of like the song, I Need a Hero. You know, there's a person who's going to come and bring revival. Now, I want to say this, and I think I might be prophesying, that I believe this new move of God actually is not orientated towards personalities. And it's actually going to slay the celebrity cult that is around in Christendom today. Because it's going to be all about Jesus, which it should be anyway, but it's going to be about body ministry. It's going to be about the apostolic that we believe in here, the fivefold ministry, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And so the danger is that we see this person or a handful of people as the answer. And what this can do whenever we are future-orientated to revival way ahead somewhere 
is that when we fantasize about that, we can breed passive people who often waste their present because they're waiting for something future. You understand? So I, I want to say this. If you want to be living the lifestyle of a revivalist, don't wait on revival. You need to step into it. It is not the passive waiting for revival, but it's an active pursuit of revival in the lifestyle that you're living. And there's a sense in which you're meant to be a walking revival. If you are a New Testament, New Covenant, Spirit-filled believer, you are the revival that the world is waiting for. And so we must not idolize some unspecified indefinite event in the future. We must not mystify it to that extent. I think what has happened is we have needed the dream of revival because the status quo of our Christian experience is so subnormal. Did you catch that? We need the myth of revival because what we're experiencing is so subnormal, whereas it is my belief that actually revival is normative Christianity. See, what we've done is there are bad Christians, okay, we might call them carnal Christians or backslidden, cold, lukewarm Christians. Then there are the good Christians. They're the ones that are mature and they're on fire. But then there's this transcendent thing that is revival. I think there's a danger in that. In our history, there's such a lack of authenticity and purity that we have defined revival as the exceptional rather than the standard. And we need to demystify revival. As I read the Acts of the Apostles, the history of the early church, which is narrative theology, teaching us the way the church should be today, I see a constant revival on the earth to our children and our children's children. The Holy Spirit is presently being poured out in the end times, so this is what we should be experiencing now. And historic revivals in this regard can be unhealthy, obsessive myths which actually remove us from a sense of reality and possibility that this actually can be for us now, for our time, for our generation. Are you with me now? So the danger of revival pursuit is that we get our heads stuck in the past or we get our heads put too far in the future. But a third danger is, and this is a little more hair splitting it might look, but I don't think it is, is what we can do is, and I think this is a mistake, is we observe the factors and the characteristics that have led up to a revival. And then we kind of engage a reverse logic or a false reasoning and we try to extract those principles that we think led to revival, do them, and expect God to bring the revival. This looks quite complicated. It's not really. But if you have revival as your end goal, the top diagram, revival is what we're looking for, right? And that's the end goal. You will backtrack in this reverse logic and say, well, they repented. They prayed a lot. They emphasized the Holy Spirit, fullness, baptism, gifts perhaps. 
and then they got united as the church. And so if this is what led up to the revival, that's how you get it. Let's implement these things because our goal is revival. When in fact, I think there's a bit of a danger here because our goal is not revival. We want it, yes, but that is not our goal. Our goal is the king and his kingdom. Yeah. And so when you're in the kingdom, pursuing the king, seeking first the kingdom of God, guess what you do? You live a life of repentance. You're constantly repenting every day. You're, you're operating a life of prayer and communion with God. You're living under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and you're seeking to live in unity with your brothers and sisters. And that is the king. That is his kingdom. That is the Christian life. And then if you're doing that with any authenticity, revival is the overflow of kingdom life. You with me? And the danger is people who get obsessed or even excited with revival. Revival becomes the goal and they have a kind of mechanical approach. Let's do these things and revival will come. Take a wine from the 1800s and you try to chemically separate the, extract if you like, all the ingredients of that wine. All right, you've got them all. And then you artificially over here try to create it again by combining those same chemical components. And then you expect the wine to taste the same. And that's ignoring a vital dimension, which is actually not an ingredient of the wine, but is the central process, which is fermentation. It's the natural process of wine but there is a supernatural process of revival and you can't get it by any formula because it's God. A revivalist, in my understanding, is a carrier of the kingdom. Yeah? And so that might seem those three warnings a little nuanced, but honestly, I, 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 for years now, God has been honing this with me. Revival itself must not be the goal. It's got to be Jesus. So what is a revivalist? Or, or to put it, as I've said, a carrier of the kingdom or, or a kingdom catalyst of revival? Well, it's very interesting to me that every so-called revivalist got revived before the revival. Did you catch that? They got revived before the revival. Now, how can that be? Because it's actually not about the atmosphere of revival, though there is an atmosphere in revival, a God atmosphere, saturated by him. It's actually about the individual's devotion and passion for Jesus. Or to put it another way, it's not about a destiny or a destination of revival. It's about the journey. A while back, I learned as a Christian, you know, I'm always champing at the bit to get to the place where God wants me to be, yeah? When actually for God, it's about the journey. And so often I'm wanting to get the destination that I don't look out the window and enjoy the journey. And this really speaks to the heart of revival because if you read about historic revival, we tend to think about, you know, the thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who come to know Jesus Christ, yeah, and the societal change. But actually, when you read revival history, that's the end chapters. The rest of the chapters are all the story about how the, the guys and gals got there. That's the story. That's revival, the process. So revival 
or being a revivalist is not about waiting on something happening. It's becoming someone. The someone God wants you to be. And so here's a definition of what you need really to be a revivalist, to simplify it down. It's passionately pursuing Jesus in a revival kingdom lifestyle and then living in faith and hope that revival events will take place. That's what it is. So prayer, holiness, evangelism, unity are not the keys to getting a revival. They are the outcome of a revived heart. Are you with me? Does this feel like hair splitting? I think there's a serious gulf actually here in relation to what this is truly all about. It's all, revival is a heart that has fallen in love again with Jesus. That's what Vance Havner said revival is. Falling in love with Jesus all over again. And if you look at the gifts of the Spirit, the power gifts and so on, the revelatory gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, sandwiched in between all that, Holy Spirit charismatic stuff, is that chapter on love. And, and, and it refers to those gifts, moving mountains by faith, all knowledge, all that kind of stuff. But if you don't have love, we're nothing. And revival is the same. This is the heart of revival. That's why the church at Laodicea was told in Revelation by Jesus, you've lost your first love. Go back to the things you did at first. It's love. We've heard it over the weekend. White, hot love for Jesus. That is what a revivalist is. And you can try all the tricks of the trade and all these formula you like, but this is the thing that will change generations, a love for Jesus. Now, that being said, there are certain characteristics that will be evident where there is that white hot love for Jesus. And these are the features that you want to look for in your primary pursuit of Jesus. If you want to be a conduit for revival, you will want to cultivate these things as you see them individually in your own walk with God and also corporately as a fellowship and as a church. Here they are. There are eight of them, okay? And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on each of them, but you may want to jot these down or, or, or photograph them. The first is the answer for social crisis. Now, I'm not talking about coming up with ideas, okay? What I'm talking about is, well, we've heard it already that, that there are some socio, sociological markers that people are picking up today that may indicate that we are on the brink of something spiritually, that a revival is imminent. doesn't mean it's guaranteed, but that the society that we're living in, even Western Europe and, and the Western world, is ripe and ready for a move of God. And what will happen if that is the case is God will bring a truth for our time. It's a bit like the concept of the prophet who comes and speaks into the, the living situation, the living word of God, a rhema word. You can call it the prophetic word, but it is a truth for our times that actually addresses the answer for the social crisis. So one of these that I believe probably centrally, if you're asking for my opinion, is the father heart of God is the answer for the aching heart of our age that is the fatherless generation, if ever there was one. I haven't got time to go into all the statistics and so on, but you know we're living in a fatherless generation. And this truth that has been 
quite recently rediscovered. It's not a new revelation, but it's a, it's a new understanding of an old revelation is that God is Abba Father and he's a good father. And that's what people need to hear. And we actually need to echo the heart of God with this truth for our times. Know what the time is, first of all. And like the sons of Issachar, understand the times, but know what to do. We often quote that first half of the verse. But the sons of Issachar didn't just have discernment. They knew what to do about it. And we actually need to speak that. We call it a now word, if you like. What God is saying to the world for the brokenness that they're actually experiencing right now. In our, our, our own nation and our island, we need to be asking God, what is the message that people need to hear right now from your heart that will address? And I'm not talking about a political manifesto. I'm talking about something that will actually speak in wisdom into the crisis that we are facing as a nation. So first of all, an answer for the, the social crisis. The second thing, is radical repentance. And as you can imagine, this is really popular, repentance, you know. Breaking up the fallow ground is how Hosea described it. And you know what fallow ground is, ground that's hard and arid and been disused for so long and breaking it up so as it can become fertile again. And I'm not talking about heaping condemnation on people and coming under the law this is simply just getting into a normal place where God pours out blessing. And in case you didn't know it, God doesn't bless sin. Now, he blesses sinners just as well, isn't it? But he doesn't bless sin. And radical repentance, repentance means, of course, change of mind, literally metanoia, the Greek word, change your mind. And we do need to change your mind, how we think about ourselves, how we think about God, but we also need to change our behavior. Now, not in a legalistic way, but through the power of the Holy Spirit and his influence, but we do need to change. And guys, newsflash, there is sin in the church. Serious sin. We're fornicating. We're getting drunk. We are, in the spirit of this age, following after what everybody else is doing and sometimes doing it under the guise of grace. And then in next breath, we're talking about, oh, we want a revival. Waking up. God is a holy God, and he doesn't require us to be perfect to bring holiness. He pours the Spirit out on the sinners, but we've got to actually come into line with the plumb line of God's truth to realize it's not him that needs to move, it's us. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sins, heal their land, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. I know that's Old Testament, but repentance is not Old Testament. John the Baptist came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' first words were repent. And then his last words to the church in Revelation were repent, repent, repent. Were five times to seven churches, he told them to repent. And this is new covenant under grace. So, we don't want to fall into, and some of us have moved away, thank God, from legalistic mental Christianity with very little fun. Um, and we don't want to go back to that, yeah? But let's be careful because we are called to follow Jesus every day of our lives by taking up our cross, which is repentance. And an element of this is sacrifice as well. I believe in prosperity. 
And when I say that, I believe in biblical prosperity, not some wacky stuff that goes on at times in Christian circles. But I do believe in God's favor and his blessing. But I also believe in sacrifice. And the fire always falls upon sacrifice. And if you want, it's all of grace, but there is a certain price to pay to follow through with God. The fire always falls in the sacrifice. And so if you want to be a revivalist, you need a lifestyle then of repentance. I just spend my whole life repenting. I don't know if there's something wrong with me. I don't know. But um, I just spend my whole life repenting. And it's not just of sinful behavior, but also things I've believed over the years and said over the years. And we need a lifestyle of truth. We need a lifestyle of holiness, not the legalistic type, but the Holy Spirit type. Because he is Holy Spirit. And then if you want to be a revivalist, you've got to have a life that speaks of that and exhort others to live that way. The third thing is fervent prayer. Uh, Zechariah 12, verse 10, I think Al actually alluded to this earlier when when the Lord was really near, um, a spirit of supplication. Zechariah 12, 10 says, I will pour out in the house of David on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for firstborn. So people see Jesus, who he is, and what he's really done for them when there's a spirit of prayer and supplication is poured out. And the church, boy, do we need that. I don't know of any historic revival that was not preceded by a lot of prayer. Now, it's not the same as saying, oh, I need to get started to pray here to get a revival. It doesn't work like that. But I believe in the church, there is a a pouring out right now of a spirit of prayer and supplication. Before the 1859 revival, 1858 in in the States, and 1859, of course, over here in, in parts of Britain, there was the 1857 New York prayer meeting. And of course, uh, we heard about Hernhut and the um, Moravians, that over a 100-year prayer meeting, actually. And of course, more modern times, you've Dick Eastman, if you've heard of him, and Every Home for Christ, and him starting uh, the, the night watch in prayer, and there's International House of Prayer, Kansas City, and the whole harp and bowl movement, and 24-7 prayer. What is happening? I think God is positioning the church for a move of God. It was, it was Andrew Murray who said many years ago, the person who sets the church praying will do the most for world evangelization. So when God is about to do something, he sets people praying. So if you want to be a revivalist, you need to pray. I don't find it the easiest thing in the world. And for that reason, that's why I prioritize it. I give a big chunk of my day, a big chunk of my life to prayer. And sometimes there's fasting. Not enough, you say, looking at me. I know, I know, I know, I know. But pray and emphasize prayer. Make room for prayer. And I know it's cliched, you know, prayer meetings that, Smallest meeting in the church. But why is that? Let's not make prayer boring. And sometimes those meetings are boring. But listen, this is our audience with God. And we need to fall in love again with prayer and actually be able to say, I like it. I actually love it. It's hard. But some of the things that are 
hardest in life accrue the best results? Fervent prayer. Fourthly, Holy Spirit's power. Amen. It's a genuine masterstroke of the enemy to shroud the doctrines of the Holy Spirit in controversy. Isn't it? I mean, if you were him, that would, you'd be proud of that idea, wouldn't you? The very dynamic force that you need for the church to fulfill the Great Commission across the earth, you get them fighting about it and some afraid of it. And central to every revival that I know of is the Spirit-filled life, the gifts of the Spirit. And we could argue about terminology, but really that, that's kind of redundant. What really matters is that we're operating under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and we're moving in His power that was poured out at Pentecost. Yeah? That's what Paul did when he preached the gospel. It says in Romans 15, where he preached the gospel, he did it with signs and wonders. That's what the Great Commission is in Mark chapter 16. These signs shall follow those that believe. And at the very last verse of that chapter 16, it says, and God was with them working miracles, signs following. Then you get the Acts of the Apostles and that, that's it. And so the power of the Holy Spirit is so necessary. But if you're moving in that and you're exhorting others to move in it, you've got to be prepared yourself to be open for whatever phenomena the Holy Spirit wants to give. And that's the challenge. Because each of us has the potential for offense in this area. Okay? And it's usually religious offense. It's usually the religious Pharisee. And I'm not saying that we don't test the spirits. We do test the spirits. And we don't take everything as being from God, even when it's claimed to be. But God does some weird stuff. And if you read historic revivals, there's some weird stuff goes on. Really weird. Do you know the word, look up the word weird in the dictionary. It actually means something spiritual. Something unusual and spiritual. And uh, sometimes then that means there's misunderstanding about what God's pouring out. There's even, dare I say it, persecution towards those who are experiencing this from inside the church. I can't remember who, who said it. But if you find a revival that is not opposed, you need to look again to see if it really is revival. It's always opposed, and usually by the religious. But here's another element, and I, I think you're all on the page where that's concerned, the need for the Holy Spirit. But here's something that I was skeptical of years ago, but now I fully embrace. <laughs> um, impartation. Impartation. You might have heard that word already and wonder what it is. Well, it's just to impart something of the Holy Spirit. Paul said he wanted to come, um, wasn't it the Ephesians, that he might impart some spiritual gift to them, and through the laying on of hands, that, that was going to happen, Paul said. Now, I used to criticize, even when I, I believed in revival, and even to the extent when I believed in the fullness of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, which has only been in the last 11 or so years. I used to preach against it, by the way. That's a whole other story, but anyway. Um, uh, I used to criticize people who ran to Canada, America, or certain other places where God was moving to catch something. What are they doing? Not cases. God's here. Do you not know? You can pray to him here. Whatever he's doing in Canada, even if it is of God. Uh, and that's a big question. It was in my mind, you know. Um, why can't he do it here? Well, I've since revised that. I'm not going to go into all the scriptural details. But what I will say is, uh, Maggie was at Genesis 28 in Bethel with us the other uh, morning, and she talked about God's spots. There are places where God's presence is very intense, where God's doing things. And I, 
I was so, so proud, and there's still mature pride there, but the 1859 revival in Ulster, nobody was running around America looking for blessings. God just came. More repentance. Repentance, repentance all the time. I, I read something I'd never read before. I was actually asked to do a revival tour a couple of years ago. It was George Otis Jr., if you've seen the transformation videos a few years ago, um, he was over, wanted a revival tour. I was asked to give a bit of a talk in relation to the 1850 revival around County Antrim. And in my research, I discovered that William Gibson, if you ever read the book or seen the book, The, the Year of Grace, written about the 1859 revival, and the current moderator, or one who would become the moderator of the Presbyterian Church, took a boat over the United States to see this 1857 prayer meeting in New York, and they testified when they got there, they caught something, and they brought it back in the boat to Ulster. Now, if you want to be a revivalist, I want to encourage you, you need to spend money, and you need to go where God's moving. Because there's things to be caught. And I believe that, I believe that that's, that's happened to me. Be open Move on the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Move on to the giftings of the Holy Spirit. Preach about the Holy Spirit. Teach about the Holy Spirit. Disciple people in the Holy Spirit and be prepared to go where the Holy Spirit is doing stuff. Fifthly, preaching the Word of God. Imagine having to tell Christians that. But you know, Ezra and Nehemiah were used in a move of God. And isn't it interesting that the book of the law had got buried in the temple. You used to sing that song, Dust on the Bible. Remember that one? This is a bit more. This is bricks and mortar on the Bible. And um, the, part of the renewal was recovering the book of God from their history. And Nehemiah shows us that the people had to be taught the Hebrew language again. They'd actually lost the language of God. Revival has always started when people started taking God's word seriously again. And I think that's going to be characteristic of this current move of God. Um, some of you may know Smith Wigglesworth. He's not, he's not in the Andrea as far as I know. But um, he was a plumber, a Yorkshire plumber. And in 1947, a week before his death, he predicted two developments in the universal church. He said, first, there would be restoration of the gifts of the Spirit, and then second, there would be a revived emphasis on the Word of God. And he said, when these two moves of the Spirit combine, we shall see the greatest move of the church of Jesus Christ has ever seen. I believe that's what's happening. It's what needs to happen. But if I can say it, I think at times we're a bit weak on the Word side. And I thank God for, for the heritage that I have I've moved on a lot, but I don't despise it, and I honor it, and I thank God for the foundation of Scripture. And the greatest awakening in history will occur when we awaken to who we are as children of God and who the Father is to us in Jesus. But that can only come from the Word of God and the revelation He's given. And then there will be the kingdom of God upon the earth, Romans 8, 19. The, the, the whole creation is groaning in expectation of the waiting for the revealing, the revelation of the sons of God. You know what this universe is waiting for? You to waken up to who you are in Christ and who God is as your Father. And when that happens, something happens. Revival happens. 
And this is probably one of the reasons why some revivals have petered out. They have been wide, but they have not been deep. And I'm not going to, I don't like critiquing individual revivals. But take the Welsh revival. The Welsh revival was one of the most phenomenal outpourings of the Spirit that affected the whole world in, in missionary endeavor and so on. But Wales is one of the most godless countries. I think you can still feel the embers of revival there. But so quickly Wales depleted in its spirituality. And people who love God would say that maybe there wasn't the depth at times in the Word. I'm not saying that, but it's certainly worth looking at. Whereas the revivals that have lasted, the Great Awakening, 1859, etc., were very much centered not only around the movement of the Spirit, but the Word of God. And we need to start preaching the Word of God again and forget about the intimidation of the world and PC culture, etc. We, we have got the sword of the Spirit and we're afraid to use it. We're afraid to speak it. Preach the Word. <laughs> Good caption, that one. Um, sixth, harvest of souls. Harvest of souls. I said earlier in my definition that revival is more than just people join the church, but it's also more than renewal in the church. We need renewal. We need reformation. But revival is more than that. Revival must affect outside the walls of the church to the conversion of the lost and indeed our communities. I actually prefer the word awakening. Awakening in the church, but it's an awakening, out, a spiritual awakening. Now, for that to happen, guess what? We need to preach the gospel. We need to pe tell people how to be right with God, that Jesus died. We need to get the cross back into our message, the resurrection. And we need to do it with signs and wonders following. We need to preach the whole gospel of the kingdom. I'm agreed. But Where's the cross gone? We need to get back to the power of Jesus' blood that we were singing about the other evening. And then we will see an awakening. People are looking the answer. A harvest of souls. That's what revival looks like. Then seventh, spiritual warfare. Revival's messy because revival's war. We need to de-romanticize revival. It's often romanticized by biographers and historians. The Lord led me about maybe eight or nine years ago into a ministry of deliverance with people and healing. Um, and I wondered what that was all about. It was great and all, and uh, I was enjoying it and still enjoy seeing people set free and helped. But the light bulb came on one time when I was listening to Alistair Petrie. Some of you may know of him. And he was talking about how the Lord had led him similarly. And he was in a parish in, in Scotland. And uh, the Lord showed him that the reason why he brought him into this individual ministry be, was because the principles that pertain to an individual being set free and made whole are actually identical to what needs to be implemented in a community to see that happen. Take the demoniac, for instance. He, the demoniac was set free by Jesus. It, he was hugely demonized, but he was in a region that nobody went near, right? And you remember when he got delivered, the people said, go away from us, Jesus. It's weird, isn't it? 
Go away from us, Jesus. But then what did the, the guy say? I want to follow you everywhere you go. And Jesus says, no, go and pray, tell people what's happened to you. And he went to the Decapolis, which is the 10 cities. Later on in the Gospels, we see Jesus ends up going there and having a miraculous time with signs and wonders. And it says that the people welcomed him there. Now, what happened was that that demoniac was like a lightning rod for the heavenly realm of powers of darkness to have a sway over geographical area. But when he got set free, the area got set free eventually, through the preaching of the gospel. A number of years ago, I was in Hernhut, uh, and there was a conference, prayer conference, and it was actually George Otis Jr. made me aware of a book about the Mutlingen revival. Johann Blumhart, I'd never known really much about this revival, but it's staggering. Uh, Johann Blumhardt went to Mutlingen to be a pastor. It's in the Black Forest part of Germany. And there was a girl in the region called uh, Gottlieben Ditus. And she was greatly disturbed. No one had an answer for her. She was suspected of having dabbled in black magic and other evil practices that are rife in that area even to today. And her house became known for weird sounds, eerie goings on, and she was also very ill in her mind and her body. The doctor was convinced that it was spiritual, and he actually lamented that the church could do nothing for her. And initially, Bloomhart, he was honest. He said he just avoided this girl. He didn't know what to do with her. And eventually, he too became challenged of her predicament. And he began to realize this was demonic. And he walked up to her on one occasion in her home when she was unconscious. And he shouted in her ear, and I'm not suggesting you do this, by the way. But he shouted, Gottlieben, put your hands together and pray, Lord Jesus, help me. We have seen enough of what the devil can do. Now let us see what the Lord Jesus can do. Okay, that's desperation. And this began a process in his ministry of experimentation in this area. You know, he didn't have Derek Prince. He didn't have any of the people to guide in this area. And for two years, he learned from God. And this became known as Bloomhart's Battle or the Fight. And it all came to an end in 1842. Think how many years ago we're talking about. When this demonic manifestation in this, this young girl ended with the demons crying out, Jesus is victor. Jesus is victor. And the whole town heard the cry when this girl got delivered of these spirits. And right after that, there was a massive revival. There were healings, signs, wonders, even opponents of the gospel were radically transformed. Marriages were saved. Enemies were reconciled. But the turning point was the deliverance of this woman. Because this woman was a conductor for the demonic stronghold. And the influence that she, the spirits in her had, was broken by deliverance. And we need to be moving in these areas some people are all into tackling principalities and powers. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for praying that God deals with those things. But we need to be very careful what we ourselves step, in, step into. But we have authority to do ground warfare in Jesus' name. And you know the best way to disempower those forces in the heavenlies is to get people set free through the power of the gospel down here and they lose their influence up there. That's, that's the way it works. But we need to be actually cognizant of the need for spiritual warfare and we need to be proficient in the weapons of our warfare in our churches. And eighth and finally, unity. 
Unity in spirit and in truth. That's what the Bible talks about, unity in Jesus Christ. Now, you can't manufacture this just like you can't manufacture a revival, but it has to come in love and grace. Psalm 133, you probably know it well. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. Where? There. Where there was unity, true unity in spirit and truth. And we need to work towards that. Leonard Ravenhill said the only reason we don't have revival is because we're not willing or we're willing to leave, live without it. We're willing to live without it. Think about that for a moment. It's really all about appetite and desire. That's really what it comes down to. What do you want? We are not waiting on a revival. Revival is waiting on us. Amen? I'm finished. I just want to show you a video, a song by Kim Walker Smith. I want you to prayerfully watch the lyrics and listen to the words. I am prepared to pray with anybody and whatever I have, whatever God has given me, I want to give it to you or give it to anybody that wants it. So if you want prayer from little old me, I know what I am without God, but I know what I am and can be with God. Come and get that prayer. I'll do a corporate prayer over you all now. And then I want you to watch this video. Lord, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? We declare that we have right now, in this age and generation, a habitational culture of the Holy Spirit, rather than a visitational culture. We believe you've come to dwell within us, but we do believe that you're in us for our benefit, but you're upon us for the benefit of others in this world. We con confess that we owe our generation a supernatural encounter with God, and we repent of not giving it to them. We repent of living less than our inheritance in Jesus. And Lord, we just come to you hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And you have said that if we do that, we will be filled. But Lord, would you increase our hunger? Would you increase my hunger for you, my capacity to hold what you want to pour out? And what you are pouring out in the world today. And Lord, I just want to bless this company. There's a sense in which... I, wonder, ooh, why am I doing this? Why am I taking it? But Lord, I just, if I can do this, I just want them to have anything I have. If there's anything worth having that I have, Lord, that you've given me, I want them to have it if they're ready to take it. And I pray that they'll go with it and they'll run further than I've run with it. Come, Lord. Come, Lord. We need a fresh outpouring, times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Watch this song, and if it is your prayer, ask him to be a fire starter. That's what I want to be. 
a fire starter. 